Well, good morning. And could you please turn with me to the book of Ephesians? Because we are trying to start Jamie off well and be merciful and gracious towards him, he's not going to get to preach for another couple of weeks so he can get his head back into the books. And, uh, but here we are. We begin a series which will go for who knows how long uh, through the book of Ephesians. Three pastors have told me I recommend doing Ephesians in 20. So one said 25 to 30 and one said 30 to 35. And I said, I'm not even going to try and work that out uh, yet. Uh, in th about three weeks' time, Three Sundays' time, Jamie, Lord willing, will begin a series that will run concurrently with this one, and he will be preaching through the book of Philippians. Uh, we're calling that one uh, Rejoice, and so it'll be a wonderful uh, little series uh, for Jamie to start uh, in the morning. And then tonight, at 5 p.m., uh, we're starting a, a series from the Old Testament with Old Testament stories, which we're calling Not Just for Sunday School. And so I get Noah and the Ark to begin uh, tonight. Um, Ephesians, uh, this, this morning, my goal is simply to introduce this book. It's to give a taste and to leave you wanting more, not preach the whole thing. All right? So uh, excuse uh, the brevity if you wanted uh, a longer sermon. Uh, I'm going to try and uh, leave you wanting more. I'm incredibly intimidated by Ephesians, more so than Hebrews, which we've gone through, more so even than the book of Revelation. And possibly the reason for that is, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, does not hold back. He just dives straight into the good heavy stuff. He, there is, there's no sort of lead in into the big complex parts. It's bang, it's right there in verse 3. Chapter 1 of Ephesians is the smorgasbord of big words and big doctrines and big truths and controversial uh, words as well, and it's truth that makes your heart sing. Verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1 constitute a paragraph that is essentially one long sentence. The second longest sentence in the New Testament, and that sentence is just a genealogy, so it doesn't really count. People say that the Apostle Paul may not have written Ephesians, and I, I don't agree with them. And I, One thing we do know about this person is if you're going to do one long sentence of 200 and something words, you're definitely a preacher. Some of you, shall I say, many of you have been asking lots of questions about election and predestination and foreknowledge and all of those words, and you've got your way. We're going to do talk about that in the first chapter of Ephesians, and so we're going to go slowly until everyone begs me to speed up. Ephesians is wonderful. It's glorious. When I say it should make our hearts sing and set our hearts aflame, I mean it. In Ephesians, we hear that the grace and peace of God 
in Jesus Christ creates a blessed new community of saints who are to live new lives, having been called from darkness to live in the light. And so let's begin by reading through the first chapter of these wonderful letter to the church at Ephesus. This is the word of the living God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of an, our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his, his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all." All flesh is like grass, and the grass withers, and the flower fades, and the word of our God endures forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Paul, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Let's use the first two verses. The verse one, there's an apostolic introduction. In verse two, there's an apostolic benediction, the bit where it says grace and peace. And we'll use it to introduce Ephesians uh, quickly. Paul, the apostle Paul, whose conversion we read about in the book of Acts in chapter nine, he went from being the foremost persecutor of the church to an apostle, and he says this is according to the will of God. There's something important here in Ephesians. According to the will of God, God always gets his way. Paul is an apostle to bear witness to the risen Christ who he has seen on the road to Damascus, and he is specifically credited with being the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is a Jewish man who is primarily tasked with sharing the good news and seeing churches planted in predominantly Gentile places. And he is training up leaders and so on and so forth. And so much of the second half of the book of Acts details what Paul was doing. And we find out in Ephesians chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison. It's a situation that he finds himself in very often. We're told at the end of the book of Acts that Paul spent time in prison in Rome and he was essentially under house arrest from AD 60 to AD 62 and he was able to receive visitors. And it is probably here that this letter to the church in Ephesus was written. And he writes this letter to a people who he hasn't seen for a while, but it's a church that he definitely has a history with because he helped plant it. From uh, A.D. 52 to A.D. 55, almost three years, the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. He based himself in Ephesus. And so this is about five, maybe six years on from that time that you can read about in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19. We have the planting of the church in Ephesus and this absolutely crazy story of, of, um, of silversmiths and persecution and, and prison and, and riots and, and everything going on out there that you can read uh, for yourself. And in Acts chapter 20, we have Paul's tearful farewell to the elders in the church in Ephesus. And so five to six years on, he is writing back. And he is writing back not only to this church, he's probably also sending this letter as a circular to some of the surrounding churches in the area. Ephesus is this capital city, so to speak, of the, the Roman province of Asia. It's, it's, it's big. It's about 250,000 people. It's huge for a city back in that day. And it had within it the temple of Artemis. You can look that up yourself, um, or some, some of you might know it as the temple of Diana. And this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, multiple times bigger than the, the Parthenon in Greece. Huge building. It's a temple to... Artemis. And so there's lots and lots of paganism. There's lots and lots of magic. We read that in Acts 19 in this city. 
And so if you're a Christian in Ephesus, you're constantly being asked, why would you possibly do that? Why would you possibly follow a crucified God? You'd be absolutely looked down on. You are strange breaking away from the status quo. Why would you take a weak, crucified Savior when you can have, look, look at the glory upon the hill there of Artemis. Look at that glory. And so Paul is writing back. Paul is encouraging. He's letting the, the people in Ephesus, he's letting the believers there know just how blessed they are. And he's letting them know that Yes, there's this impressive building there in your city, but Jesus Christ is so much greater. So much greater. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is, is, is king over all. He is seated in the heavenly places. He rules and reigns. He is better. His rule is better. He is more powerful. Nothing is outside of his control. Paul is encouraging these predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish believers, although we know the church is always going to be mixed there. He says he's encouraging with the fact that together they're united, and they're united with Jesus Christ, and they're incredibly blessed in him. He's letting them know you're not second-class people. You are united and have a holy and special calling as believers in Jesus Christ. And he's telling them to, you, God's plan to unite all things in Jesus Christ. That's the plan of God. That's what we read about in, in verse 10. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That's going to be a key and crucial theme throughout this book. If we're used to, to reading Apostle Paul's letters, we might be a little bit taken aback by Ephesians. It's not like Galatians where he's talking about justification by faith over and over and over. But he does mention, by grace you have been saved through faith. When he does talk about justification by faith, Paul's very clear. He nails it down there in chapter 2. And he doesn't talk about the cross a whole lot in Ephesians, but when he does talk about it, he's very clear. He says, you've been redeemed through the blood of Christ at the cross. What Paul is doing here is encouraging. He is building up. There doesn't seem like there's any one controversy here. It doesn't sound like there's any sort of false teaching that he's trying to, to deal with. He is just simply trying to encourage these people as they live within rank paganism around them and encourage them with how blessed they are in Christ. Paul is showing us the big picture of how everything fits together. Now, the Manawit too has got a number of places where you can go and you can, you can see quite far. There's some mountain ranges, and you can, you can see off into the distance. And Paul's doing this. He's, he's taking us up on a hill, and he's looking out. You drive over the saddle road, and you can see, oh, there's Ashurst and Pahongana and, 
and, and Palmerston North, and there's Levin often in the corner. If you, uh, if you like hiking, as you can tell, I'm not really built for hiking, but you, you, you go up on a clear day up into the Rohini Ranges, and you can see the Hawke's Bay, and you can see Mount Ropeu off in the distance, and you can see the city, and you can see everything, and you can see how it all fits together. That's what Paul's doing. He's taking us up and he's showing with clarity where everything is in God's beautiful plan and how it all fits together. And as I'm sure you've experienced, when you see the landscape of God's beautiful creation in this country, the best, most beautiful country on earth, amen? There's a wonder that it produces. There's, a, there's, a, there's, there's an awe that comes as you behold mountains and valleys and rivers. We almost sometimes are so used to them in this country that we get bored until someone comes from another far-off country and starts talking about how amazing it is over here. That's what Paul's doing. He's, he's reminding us. He says, here's how good it is. This is how good we have it. In Christ. God's plan is to bring all creation to the point where it finds its head in Christ. How does God do this? He, he does this by blessing the people in Christ. He gives them a, a new identity. He says to the grace and peace, and who, who's this to it? To the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus in Ephesus. Having once had solidarity in sin and in Adam, people in rebellion to God, Paul is saying, hey, there's a much better identity. There's a much better solidarity. There's a much better thing that binds us together, that binds humanity together, and that is being bound together in Christ. And so those that belong to Christ, those that believe in Christ, are called saints. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would have you believe that there are only about 10,000 saints. And to be a saint, you, uh, you have to, through your prayers, have caused at least two miracles. And you have this uh, sort of wonderful, exemplary life. And then this, the church gets together and decides after a period of time whether you're a saint or not. Guess what? None of you qualify. I don't either. Not a saint. But here, Paul says, the saints. And to be a saint is to be set apart in Christ Jesus. It's meant to be too holy. He says, yes, there's, there's an aspect of moral righteousness to it, but ultimately it's talking first and foremost about being set apart in Christ Jesus. You belong to him. You've, he has set you apart. That's why he calls the church saints. That is the language of baptism. That you have died and your old life is gone and you belong to Christ and you're raised in newness of life. There's an identification with Christ which is pictured in baptism, and so he calls these people saints. Wonderful little quote from, from Calvin. He says, 
No man or woman, therefore, is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man or woman is a saint who's not a believer. And that's great. And so he says, you're set apart. These are the blessings that you have. God has blessed through grace and peace. Grace, the, the blessings of God in Jesus Christ. And peace, he says, because of Christ, you have peace with God and you have peace with one another as the church. Incredibly blessed. Verse 3, he says, you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The believer in Christ, according to Paul's letter here, has an identity of being a saint in Christ Jesus. But they also have a special identity in their location. Someone's called this gospel geography. Their feet are firmly planted in Ephesus. But they're seated with Christ in the heavenly places because they belong to him. And so it is with all of us who belong to Christ and believe in his name. We've got two locations. Right here in the Manawatu. And at the right hand of majesty of high, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's the identity of the believer. That's the blessing. Paul lays out really how crucial it is that the believer in Christ knows how good they have it. And I've, I've said this so many times, you, you might have heard it. Who you are determines what you do. And we really see that in Ephesians. What your identity is determines what you do. The Christian life does not begin with do. The Christian life begins with, here's how God has blessed you and who you are now. Go love God and neighbor. So in chapters 1 to 3, there's this major change that takes place in this book at the start of chapter 4. Major change. The first three chapters, 1, 2, and 3, Paul's going to talk about what God has done in Christ to form this new community. He's telling them who they are. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he's saying what we have become, and as a result of that, how we are now to live. And in chapters 4 to 6, Paul's going to speak about Christian behavior, marriage, family, uh, working, And he's going to speak about spiritual warfare in chapter 6, the armor of God passage, which I, I hope you will love when, when we're done, if you don't love it already. Paul's saying, yes, you, you have one foot in Ephesus, you have one foot here, you have, you're, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, but it's still not easy. And so that's chapter 6, where he speaks about spiritual warfare. The battle is hard. But our captain, Jesus Christ, has gone ahead and won that battle. And so right now we're, we're walking towards all things being united under Christ. 
Paul so stresses the work of God and his grace and peace that there is just one imperative in chapters 1 to 3. I want, I want us to get that. Imperative. I know, I know you didn't come here for an English lesson, but imperative. Do this. Indicative. God has done. And we see so often in the scriptures, whenever we're asked to do something, whenever the believers are asked to do something, there's an imperative, there's an indicative behind it. God has done this so that you can do this. A gospel indicative sits behind an imperative. And there is only one imperative, one do this in chapters 1 to 3. Can you believe that? And there's more than 40 of them in chapters 4 to 6. And that crystallizes what I've been saying. That the focus is on what God has done in Jesus Christ and what that means for us. The only one imperative in the first three chapters is found in chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul says, remember how bad you had it. The only thing he calls the church to do in the first three chapters is to say, I want you to call to mind how much, how little hope you had apart from God. That's it. God has done it all. He has given grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that encourages his people. And so this book of Ephesians is going to be beautiful, and it's going to show us some of the wonders of salvation and what this means for God's new community. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your abundant grace and your abundant kindness towards us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the peace that binds us together. And Holy Spirit, we pray and ask that this book would be formative for the people here, that it would encourage our souls, it would awaken us the wonder of salvation. And might you, Holy Spirit, give us the strength to live as we are called to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.